Um, so it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you guys all today to Critical Care Grand Rounds. Um, so for today's speaker, we have um, Sadek Korashi, um, who's Associate Professor at Tufts University. Um, as you may have heard the conversation we were just having, he has gotten an interest in sort of macronutrients and micronutrients and sort of this idea of feeding in the ICU, which I think is an uh, area that most of us are very unfamiliar with, but is very obviously important and is something that is part of our daily and routine practice, despite most of our ignorance in it. Um, and so I'm very happy to welcome you here to share your knowledge uh, on feeding in the ICU. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey uh, so far. So, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist by primary training and then uh, critical care. Uh, and then after working for a few years and having mainly a research interest in nutrition, uh, you know, I started developing a more of a clinical interest in it. So I went back and did a clinical nutrition fellowship. Uh, and then um, prior to coming to Tufts, I was at MGH where I ran the nutrition support service. And now at Tufts, I run the uh, nutrition support service as well. Um, so this is something that, uh, you know, not only from a research perspective, which is near and dear to my heart, but also clinically something that I'm very interested in. And uh, so initially, Andy, when you asked me to, to give this talk, I was like, ooh, you know, I can drone on and on about like how amazing vitamin D is and, and, and you know, easily fill up an hour with that. But I was like, eh, you know what, like you'll probably leave that talk with maybe two or three interesting points. And um, what I decided to do instead is to try to give a 30,000 foot view of feeding in the ICU and how we think about feeding uh, critically ill patients in, in, in the modern era, or at least how we should be thinking about it. Um, sadly, what I'll tell you is that um, you, you'll probably get a lot of interesting pearls um, out of this talk, but you'll probably leave with more questions than answers. Uh, but that's good because nutrition is one of those black box areas that really requires our knowledge of pharmacology, physiology, pathophysiology, and all those things to really adapt uh, that. And if you look at any large trials that have you know, really taken place with regards to uh, nutrition support, I shouldn't say any, but most uh, large trials that have taken place with regards to nutrition support, what you'll see is that, you know, the outcomes are always, well, there's no difference. And hopefully once we get through this talk, you'll start to understand those nuances and kind of see, um, you know, what that's all about. So, of course, uh, my disclosures here. So you can see I not only tempt myself to academia and the federal government, but also to industry. In today's world, you can't do any of the research and stuff that you want to do if you don't have um, the, you know, support from you know, every possible source imaginable. Uh, these are the objectives, and I'll, I'll make these slides available. You're, you know, feel free to use them and do whatever you want. I mean, I stole them from somebody else, so you can too. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, these, these are my slides, but you can, but you can use them. Uh, so uh, you can read through these later. Uh, so, so this is, um, you know, what we consider in, uh, you know, sort of hospital-based uh, nutrition support, sort of that the landmark paper. This is something that really started it all off, and it's called the skeleton in the hospital closet. So in 1974. Uh, Charles Butterworth wrote this story about iatrogenic star, uh, malnutrition or uh, iatrogenic starvation, that as physicians and healthcare providers, you know, we thought starving patients was just the right thing to do. Uh, and, um, and so that really ushered this new sort of thought process in terms of, yeah, I guess we really should be thinking about nutrition. Um, and nutritional issues aren't just related to, you know, small children, you know, that have intestinal issues. Uh, and so if you look at the sort of the evolution of hospital-based uh, nutrition, uh, you know, you can see that in the 1960s is when, uh, 
you know, we really started thinking about it. And the reason why this happened was that's because in 1967, Stanley Dudrick invented uh, TPM. Uh, and uh, Stanley Dudrick, for those of you who don't know, was a surgeon. Uh, he actually discovered TPN as a resident at the University of Pennsylvania. So now you can understand why when people like me and older than me say they don't make residents like they used to, see, like the guy invented TPN when he was a resident, right? Um, I asked myself, what did you do? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> but anyway, so in 1967, uh, he was uh, initially interested in pediatric surgery and had a lot of uh, patients with intestinal failure. And, you know, was trying to think of, you know, how do we support these uh, with children? And that's how he developed TPN. And so that's why in the 1960s, people really started saying, oh, that nutrition may be something that we maybe we could intervene in and, and maybe modulate. And then in the 1970s, when this whole uh, skeletons in the closet story came out, you know, people started to, to pay attention. And then PEM or protein energy malnutrition was really coined in sort of the late 1970s. And, you know, of course, us being good Americans, you know, we always believe that if a little is good, more is better, and then even more is better. And that's where that whole concept in the, you know, late 70s and early 80s that, uh, you know, hyper uh, alimentation, right? Oh, these people have been starving. So now let's just bomb them with calories. You know, let's just make up for it because if we just, you know, shove all this in, into their system, um, it's got to be better for them, right? I mean, it's nutrition. It's, it's got to be good. Um, so then, you know, and then of course people started dying and then we were like, well, hey, maybe that's not the best way to really approach nutrition. So then we started scaling back. And then the whole concept of, you know, oh, maybe we should be using the gut uh, in, when we can, if it's available, started to really take off in the early 80s. And so then there was the swing from no nutrition the entire time that you were in the hospital, to, you know, becoming cachectic like that, that figure that you can see up there. That was your typical patient that came into the hospitals in the 1960s and 70s to hyperalimentation where people were dying because of all the, the negative effects of doing that. Uh, and only getting IV nutrition to then in the 80s and then into the 2000s and, and the you know 2010s or so, this focus on, okay, we need to give high-quality macronutrients. If the gut works, we should use that. Uh, and then this interest in increasing, uh, you know, protein delivery, and that sort of still continues to this day. And then as you can see on the right-hand side, all these newer things, right, really trying to understand where does enteral nutrition and parental nutrition, like where's the sort of the crossover, when do you do one versus the other, when do you initiate it, you know, where, how does metabolism play into this and the microbiome and all these different things and all these, you know, sort of questions that we have in nutrition, and that's where we are right now. So, you know, so, so, you know, so, so that's sort of the evolution of things. And then, you know, the big question is, you know, if you ever go anywhere and you ask a surgeon, for example, right, you say, you know, is malnutrition a problem? They say, yes, of course, 100%. Say, is malnutrition a problem with your patients? No, absolutely not. All my patients are doing great, right? And it's like, <laughs> okay, well, if every surgeon is saying that, you know, how, how is it that we, you know, one out of two older people that come into the hospital are, you know, either malnourished or at risk of malnutrition? You know, how are all all these outcomes related to malnutrition for showing up nationally when you look at this national data in the United States. So it has to be far more prevalent than what we really think it is. And the cost related to malnutrition, for example, in this study, this was a very, very conservative estimate, was about $50 billion. And uh, some of the other studies show uh, the sort of costs related to malnutrition alone or diseases that occur as a result of malnutrition somewhere in the $150 billion uh, range. So, you know, if the truth is somewhere in between, you're looking at about $100 billion, right? I mean, that's an incredible amount of money related to malnutrition. 
And then taking going back into sort of the surgical population and saying, you know, does it really impact particular types of surgery? Well, this is people that are coming in for GI surgery. So at the time of GI surgery, two out of three patients are malnourished. And there's a three to five times higher risk of having issues. And only one out of five hospitals in the United States actually has a formal process of screening and how to prehabilitate or even rehabilitate patients. And if you look at the ROI of four places that have nutritional interventions, that's $52 return for every dollar that you spend on a nutrition support program. How many things do we do on a daily basis have this kind of an ROI? It's huge. So when we say nutrition is a low-hanging fruit, you know, no pun intended, it really is, right? I mean, yes, fruits are good for you, but I mean, this is incredible, right? $51 for every, extra dollars for every dollar that you spend. And when we start, but there's always, you know, critics that say, oh, well, the Eden trial showed that if you feed blah, 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 whatever, you know, like it's not going to work. Well, just in the last few years, two really large um, uh, uh, studies and, you know, Little journals like The Lancet, for example, you know, have shown that if you have an individualized uh, nutrition support plan, and this is going to be sort of the theme of, of what we're going to be talking about, you know, stuff like the Eden trial and all the other trials that, that we sort of generally reference, these have a sort of a standard nutrition protocol for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. But if you have the patient coming in and you have individualized feeding uh, goals for them when they come in, if you have that approach, show, so this study looked at just medical inpatients across the boards, including medical ICU patients, show that there's a dramatic reduction in mortality, length of stay, and all sorts of outcomes that you could, that you can imagine looking at. I, I work predominantly in a cardiac ICU, and so this was a uh, so the CCU and the, the cardiac surgical ICU. So, you know, and that's a huge critique in that area as well. Oh, there's really no study that's specific to us. But this was a subset of the Lancet study, a pre predetermined subset where they looked at patients with heart failure. Uh, and about a third of these patients were ICU patients and definitely showed dramatic reductions in mortality, length of stay, and all other, you know, uh, time on the ventilator and all those different things uh, if you use an individualized feeding protocol. So there is evidence there that shows that, number one, nutrition is an issue. Number two, that if you take an individualized approach towards nutrition, that you can improve outcomes. Uh, end of thought. No, just kidding. Um, so... <laughs> So, so, but, 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 you know, like there's a lot of questions about this. Right? So when I say individualized therapy, right, like what does it mean? There's all these different questions that you, that you can sort of ask that, you know, and, and, and come up as a result of, of this type of data that, that comes forward. So the first thing I'll start off with is sort of the recommendations in terms of, you know, feeding, right? So I'm going to uh, put here with something that's called the SPEN guideline, which is the European Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. There's SPEN and ASPEN. ASPEN is the American Society of Parental Nutrition, and they put these joint statements out. I put the SPEN guideline here just because it makes me look more erudite if I'm referencing something European. So, but the, the, the uh, recommendations are, are, are virtually the same. And there is a set of recommendations there. But if you look at the first three recommendations for ICU patients, basically it says any patient that's you know, in the ICU for greater than 48 hours should be considered at risk for malnutrition uh, and that we should be assessing them using a validated tool and that an oral diet is what's preferred, uh, preferably to be started within 48 hours. So 
why this 48 hours? Right? This is the big question. Right? People say, oh, you don't necessarily have to feed somebody immediately. You know, why are we talking about this? And this is one of the most important concepts to understand about nutrition. I'll, uh, I'll take a quick detour and say, you know, when you think about all these studies like the Eden trial and all the other large trials that have sort of looked at nutrition therapy, the, the focus has been, you know, either giving them like, you know, standard of care, like no nutrition or just trying to blast your way through to get to uh, your uh, sort of your goal therapy as quickly as possible. And this is the reason why it doesn't work. Right? In the acute phase of illness, right, you have profound catabolism. And we all know that when you're in a catabolic phase, it doesn't matter what you dump into the system. You're not going to turn that around and go into an anabolic stage. Recover Recovery, healing, all these things only happen when you're in an anabolic mechanism. So we'll take the example, simple example of sepsis. When you come in with septic shock, the first, you know, 24 to 48 hours before the antibiotics have had a chance to kick in, before, you know, things are sort of turning around, you can give as much nutrition as you want. The body's just not going to be able to utilize it. Actually, if you give a whole bunch of, uh, you know, nutrition during that time, you see what happens, you have energy excess, and it's actually counterproductive in that setting. You already have gluconeogenesis that's happening as a result of the stress itself, and you're taking all these macronutrients and just dumping it into the system. It's getting absorbed, and it's just floating around in the system and just can't be used. So this is the this is the very critical piece, and that's that's why most of us that do nutritional support in the ICU don't really worry about giving high amounts of nutrition in the first 48 to maybe even 72 hours purely because of this issue. And why does that, this catabolism, like why does it happen? What's the principle underlying it? So this is, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for those, you know, extreme science nerds, it's this thing called autophagy, right? Autophagy is our body's natural mechanism by which when there's an insult or injury, it'll break down all those damaged cells, recycle all that material so it can be used for other, you know, more useful processes. And what happens is when you have septic shock or you have an MI or you have any kind of insult to your body, there are cells that are damaged, that are dead or dying, and your body recognizes those and says, well, we're going to digest all this stuff down, we're just going to reuse this material, and we're going to dramatically reduce the overall energy requirement during this phase. Because if these cells that are dying are the ones that de are, are desperate, they're trying to somehow you know, maintain integrity, and they're the ones that are using the most amount of energy. So when you allow autophagy to take place, you actually knock those uh, those cells out, uh, and, and, and that's a very important part of healing. Uh, so it's not only just autophagy that we have in the early phase, which is in the first 24 to 48 hours or so. There are many things that we do to patients that dramatically reduce their resting energy expenditure. We sedate them, right? For, you know, you increase somebody's sedation level. We know that the brain is, uh, consumes about 40% of nutrients and oxygen uh, in, in the system. When you sedate somebody, you dramatically reduce that requirement. So their resting energy expenditure goes down. After an MI or maybe some kind of a traumatic, uh, uh, traumatic brain injury, we cool patients. And that's what you see up on the right-hand corner on that chart. Look at what happens to that resting energy expenditure when you're cooling somebody. It drops dramatically. So if you're using a, a formula and you say, oh, I want to give 25 kcals per, you know, per kilo, and you're giving that feed as quickly as you can, as soon as your cooled patient is in the ICU, you're sedating and cooling this patient. Their resting energy expenditure is so, so, so incredibly low, and everything that you're giving them is in excess of that. 
And so what we're potentially doing is exactly what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. We are hyper, we're in a stage of hyper alimentation, and that completely goes against, you know, sort of uh, doing the right thing for the patient. Now, there's this concept of trickle feeds, right? You'll always hear me harping about, oh, okay, you know, the patient's here 24, 48 hours, whatever. We don't need to advance feeds, but I want you to initiate trickle feeds as quickly as possible. And people have this disconnect, like to them, trickle feed means feeding. I don't understand. You said feeding is not important. Why do I have to trickle this patient? Well, the trickling really has nothing to do with nutrition itself, right? So I'm going to take us all back to first year medical school, you know, uh, prep for the, uh, for the uh, USMLEs. And, you know, it's that PTSD that, that, you know, that comes on when we say Pyre's patches, right? So it turns out that Pyre's patches are very, very important, right? Because that's where our malt, galt, vault, all these wonderful antigen-presenting cells live. That's a huge part of our innate immunity. And we all have this thing that rolls off of our tongue. We say, oh, we feed because of bacterial translocation and, and reducing, uh, you know, uh, chances of infection. Well, what does all that mean? So it turns out that in the gut, right, you have the mucus lining, you have the microvilli, the villi, all these wonderful things. And then under that, you have the pyrus patches. Now, to maintain uh, sort of integrity of the pyrus patches, you need to maintain integrity of that epithelial layer and that brush border. The epithelial layer and brush border are 100% glucose dependent, okay? So you trickle them not because you're trying to give them nutrition to sort of heal or everything. You're giving them nutrition just to provide a basal amount of glucose to that intestinal lining so that you maintain that brush border. You don't want that brush border to fall apart. You don't want the, the pyrus patches to be destroyed. You don't want your antigen presenting cells to be completely demolished. And that, that's why you do it. If you just put D10 down a feeding tube, that's just as good as if you put some fancy enteral nutrition formula. When I, when I was a fellow, we used to use D10 all the time. Uh, but now it's because of the, uh, most hospitals have this NFIT system, which is a special, you know, pump and a hookup system that goes to your feeding tube. Uh, you can't, hook up a bag of D10 into that necessarily. There, there is an adapter that you can use, but most hospitals don't have that. So it's just smarter to just use some kind of enteral formula and just run 10, 20 mLs maximum an hour. You really don't need to go more than that to protect the intestinal brush border. So does everybody need nutritional therapy? And the answer obviously is no. And we all know this innately, right? So, and then and if you remember the SPEN ASPEN guidelines, it said to use a validated tool. So what tool do you use? So there's something called the NRS 2000. You'll hear dietitians talk about this all the time. Sounds really great. The problem is, is that one of the major criteria in terms of qualifying you as being malnourished is whether you're in an ICU or not, or if there's profound, profound inflammation. Well, that's totally useless, right? So every ICU patient then using this tool is going to be malnourished. There's the MNA, which was validated in elderly patients. There's, uh, you know, all these really cool names, the MUST, Malnutrition Universal Screening Tool, and, you know, the SGA, the, you know, so all these really, really great tools. But I hope what you, what you can see here is that there's so many of them, right? Like, how do you pick? And each one of these has been validated in a specific patient population and not necessarily anywhere else. And they really haven't been validated through a continuum of, of care. And so it becomes problematic in terms of what do you pick when you do that. My favorite one is Pandora, which is the Patient and Nutrition-Derived Outcome Risk Assessment Score. And it's because it actually uses nutritional markers or markers of uh, function that are meaningful. And this 
This is something that we'll probably see more and more of, uh, you know, in the future. And so what you can see is when you look at the different things, you can look at a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, tools there. You know, there's some that do something better than the other. Fortunately, there's something called the GLIM, which is coming out, which is the Global Leadership in Malnutrition. And what they're trying to do is internationally standardize and how do we diagnose malnutrition. And so now the, 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 to determine, the, um, uh, according to the GLIM criteria, you need one phenotypic criteria and one etiologic criteria. So what you can see is if you have somebody with a low body mass, so I typically think about it in that, you know, 20 to 40 range. So if you're less than 20 or greater than 40, then you're at, uh, at risk for malnutrition. Or if you have reduced muscle mass, for those of you that love to do ultrasound measurements and you can actually look at the, the, the muscle, um, that's something that you you can use in, in the phenotypic criteria. And then etiologic criteria, you know, you either have to have a conversation with them about their food intake, but like for most of our patients, if they if acute inflammation, which is if you're in the ICU, you automatically get that. Um, so don't forget, like I said, that 20 to 40 range, you know, the U.S. is, is number one in a lot of things, and we are certainly uh, number one in, in uh, overweight percentage uh, in our population. And people forget about this, right? Because I, and I certainly, as a medical student and as a trainee, when somebody said malnutrition, in my head, I'm thinking about the, you know, the starving children in Africa, the cachectic, you know, tribal people completely forgetting about people that have very, very high BMIs uh, who are also at high risk for malnutrition. And so this is basically a heat scan looking at fat versus lean mass. And these, all of these people have the exact same BMI. And as you can see, they're very, very different. The person all the way on the left, even though they have the same BMI, have significantly higher amounts of fat in their system uh, and as a result at much higher risk of uh, negative health outcomes and malnutrition. And again, if you look at the, the CT scan uh, that goes across, not only do you see a difference in fat mass, if you can see the stuff that's highlighted in red there, that actually gives you an idea of how um, healthy that muscle is. For the person all the way to, to the right, you can see that those are solid chunks, right? Like it's, it, that's healthy muscle. And then if you look at the middle and then you go all the way to the left, you can see that, you know, it's uh, what we would say marbled, right? Uh, you pay a lot for that in a steakhouse, but that's not the type of muscle that you want to have yourself, okay? Marbling means that there is no, there's fat uh, infiltration into the muscle itself, and that means that the muscle is not necessarily strong or healthy. <clears throat> right? And so why am I talking about muscle? Because muscle is incredibly important. We know that, you know, it's about 40% of body mass. And we know that whenever you have muscle uh, pathophysiology, it's related to this sort of chain of events that happen. We've all taken care of elderly patients, and we see this, right? Low body mass, they start losing independence, they have more falls and fractures, hospitalizations, readmissions, and then that sort of that death spiral that happens as a result of that. And it kind of sucks because there's this whole natural process that already goes on underneath, right? Sarcopenia, which is a normal, like, progressive loss, you know, in age. And, and you all know this, that, you know, so when I was in my 30s, that, you know, if I was going for a run and I twisted my ankle, in about two days, I was totally back to normal. Now, if I try to run, I try to avoid running. But if I do run and I twist my ankle, it takes forever. It takes at least a week to two weeks to sort of to recover. And that's because of this natural process that's sort of going on. And you can see is once you get to that, you know, 60, 70 uh, years of age, that 
uh, loss of muscle mass accelerates dramatically. And so, this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's this, um, this word sarcopenia, which is really, really important. So it, it, it certainly happens as a natural process, uh, you know, this sort of loss over time. But it's not just the mass, right? It's also the quality and the strength and the power that you can generate that's associated with it. Uh, and again, the, you know, I'm going to use the European stuff because in North America, we really haven't come up with a definition for it. But, you know, there's three different things that you can look at. One is, you know, whether you have low strength, whether you have low quantity or quality, and then the low physical uh, performance that's associated with it. Uh, according to the, the revised European uh, definition, you, if you have any two of these three criteria, you are diagnosed with uh, sarcopenia. And if you have all three, then you're considered to, to have severe uh, uh, sarcopenia. And when we think about all these different things that you can measure, I mean, it's great because, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if in our ICU patients we could measure muscle fatigue? But we really can't, right, because most of these patients aren't even awake enough for us to, to do this. The same thing is with power, right? It's so hard to, to get somebody even to hold a dynamometer and to squeeze that like once or twice to get a grip strength in many of our sedative patients. So these are wonderful in the outpatient and sports, you know, nutrition world. But in our patients, it's really not that uh, applicable. Muscle strength is something that we can look at. So if you're looking at diaphragmatic strength, you know, you can sort of do stuff on the ventilator to get an idea. And that's definitely a, a, great, uh, a great tool. But, you know, muscle, often we're left with muscle mass. And when you think about it in terms of what gives you the most useful data, it seems that muscle mass is probably the, the least useful in terms of functional work. But if you take muscle mass and then you sort of look at leg extension, which is, a, you know, a single rep, you know, power movement. So it's uh, power and, uh, you know, strength sort of rolled into one. But there's a high correlation between the two. And so, you know, for our ICU patients, maybe just looking at mass is good enough. Uh, in terms uh, of screening. So we talked about the sarcopenia. What does it look like to us when we do this? So uh, for these next few images, the left-hand side is CT scan, the right-hand side is ultrasound, and so, and they're 10 years apart. So A was, you know, when the person first came in, they did a CT scan. B is what happens with the natural process. You can see the muscle mass has shrunk significantly and the fat content around it is significantly higher. And then when you look at the ultrasound images, you can see, again, that the, the thickness has gone down significantly and there's a lot more marbling in that muscle. What about during acute, and that's just out in the community over 10 years. So this is over four years during acute uh, hospitalization in the ICU. So this is a cross-sectional view. As you can see, you've got, you know, the stuff, you've got the spinor, spinal erect, uh, erector muscles here and the iliopsoas over here. And you can see that just in four weeks, what a dramatic difference there is in terms of the size of proximal muscles. And again, that marbling effect over there, right? There's so much more fatty infiltration on the right just after four weeks of being stuck in bed. It's pretty, pretty phenomenal. And when you look at data, even if you're consuming a decent amount of food, when you are sick, when you are under stress, when you're in the hospital, okay, if you're a young person and you're coming in pretty healthy, even if you're in the hospital for about 30 days, there's only about a 2% loss. But the older you get, just in 10 days, there's about a 6 to 10% loss. So the longer elderly patients are in the hospital, there's a dramatic muscle loss from immobilization and, and malnutrition. And then this is what we always see, like with our patients, right? In the ICU, critically ill, this is a dramatic um, uh, change under ultrasound of the rectus femoris muscle within one week 
right? Look at how dramatically different that muscle is and look how marbled it is on the right there. So pretty profound. Other things that we can look at, like I mentioned on the left-hand side there, this is a hand, the dynamometer that you can do to look at muscle strength. In the middle is, is DEXA scanning. And then something that people are getting more and more interested in is bioimpedance analysis. So basically a little current that runs through the body and looks at the impedance of that current as it goes through the different tissue in your body. And that gives you an idea of how much water, fat, muscle, whatever exists in those different compartments. Works relatively well for most of our ICU patients, except when they're grossly fluid overloaded, um, which in being in the cardiac world, they're all grossly fluid overloaded, so it's not terribly helpful. Um, but if you have somebody who's not terribly fluid overloaded, this can be a very, very useful tool to uh, assess muscle mass. Now, I'm not talking about muscle because we're all, you know, a group of physical therapists here, you know. So I'm, I, and even though the structural and the functional components are very, very important, it's really very, very important for the metabolic issues, right? Just remember that your muscle is your main reservoir for protein. And we all know that glutamine is incredibly important during times of stress, and it is the place where glutamine synthesis and storage happens the most. It's also a major regulator of blood glucose. And here you can see that, you know, in times of stress, what happens? You take your muscles, you catabolize them and break it down. And this is what you have. You have a slew of amino acids. If you don't have enough glucose in your system, what's your liver going to do? It's going to take the amino acids. It's going to deaminate. It's going to take the nitrogen group out. And what, what are you left with? You're left with the building blocks of carbohydrates. It's going to turn that into glucose. So that's why muscle is so important. Not only does it provide you with the raw uh, amino acids to make all the different proteins that you need in your system. It's also your backup source of making glucose, the raw source of, of making uh, glucose and, and uh, energy. And so can we actually measure glycogen, you know, which is the sort of the stored uh, glucose that's in our muscle as well? Turns out that there's commercial software that's coming out into the market where you can do this. Uh, and so this is, they looked at a, an athlete. So you can see like before competition on that, uh, up there on the left-hand side there, how the muscle is nice and dark. That means it's actually loaded with glycogen. And then, and then it com and if you compare it to different disease states, you can see in the critically ill patients that is completely deplete of glycogen and it's completely whited out like that. And it's really interesting that nowadays we can actually quantify the amount of glycogen that's in the muscle. Uh, and then again, like, why do we care about muscle loss? It's because it's directly related to impaired healing, increased, uh, increased risk of infections, and then obviously uh, pressure injuries and breakdown. You know, these are all, all bad signs. So, you know, everything starts at about 10%, and then as you keep going higher, the, the impact uh, in terms of outcomes is, is much, much, much worse. And we know that, you know, your uh, muscle health is influenced by various types of uh, diseases, yeah, critical illness being probably the most dramatic out of all these, but not only are, are our patients critically ill because of sepsis or whatever, oftentimes our patients will have many of these other, uh, other diseases involved, and that's why I see patients see such a dramatic change in sort of their muscle mass. And does it really matter, sarcopenia, this is accelerated sarcopenia that happens as a result of illness? Yes, it does. So if you look at readmissions and you look at disposition in terms of where they go, uh, of course, it makes a big difference in those patients and survival. Obviously, there's a big difference there, too. Uh, I'm just going to spend just 10 seconds on this. This cartoon basically shows that when you think about nutrition and sarcopenia, it, you know, it's not just for the ICU. It's something that's relevant in every phase of care. It touches upon every aspect of, of care uh, when we have that. So when you think about sarcopenia and you think about, like, what are the things that, you know, we can do, what's modifiable, it turns out 
the nutrition obviously is one of those things that is huge. And when we see our patients, so this is a, a very staggering uh, statistic that I saw that even patients who are awake and eating in the hospital, about 50% of hospitalized patients don't finish the meal that they're provided. And we, we all joke, right? When we round, we go, oh yeah, the food really sucks in the hospital, right? Well, yeah, the food might really suck in the hospital, that that's true. But if you're starving, right? It shouldn't matter. Even if the food sucks, like you should really eat that. There are many other things that are involved, right? So there's swallowing difficulties. Maybe a lot of those patients have, have had an NG tube in and they have swelling in the back of their throat. They don't have their dentures. They can't chew. Like there's a whole bunch of things that we need to assess when we see our patients. It's not just an issue of they're not eating. They're not eating because of potentially because of many, many, many different things. And so when, if we don't look at that, we often miss an opportunity to start feeding patients early and, and trying to prevent this sort of, this uh, the cycle, right? You develop anorexia, the anorexia then leads to malnutrition, malnutrition leads to sarcopenia, the anorexia itself leads to sarcopenia, and then that just keeps self-perpetuating, and, you know, we, we often see this with, with our ICU patients. And this is not to say that malnutrition and sarcopenia are totally two different um, entities. They are different entities, but oftentimes they can exist in patients. And what I'll do is I'll just go through this quickly. The important thing to here to realize is so the bottom, the, the red curve, which is all the way at the bottom, is patients who present with sarcopenia and malnutrition versus all the way at the top, the, the dark blue, is patients that have neither of those. And you can see what a huge difference there is in terms of their survival curve. And then all the stuff in between is if you have one or the other and, and sort of, you know, they sort of go sequentially. But the, the important thing to realize this is that if you have limited resources in terms of intervening, if you have if you have no shortage of resources, that's great. You should screen everybody for malnutrition and for sarcopenia, and then try to intervene on that. But if you have limited resources, the people that are most likely to have negative outcomes and potentially most likely to benefit from intervention are the ones that present with both sarcopenia and malnutrition. All right, so. Uh, Life is a balancing act. We all know this, right? So, you know, you have all these things that lead to loss of muscle, the inactivity, the malnutrition, high inflammatory, you know, control. And once you're past the catabolic phase, then what you need to do is to focus on the synthesis pathway. And a lot of people say, well, how do I know when you switched from catabolism to anabolism? Isn't there a marker, something that we could look at? Well, these are the catabolic and anabolic pathways of muscle health. And I don't know. Uh, to me, it's all like foreign. Yeah, I, I can't even figure this stuff out. Like, I have no idea. Like, I know a little bit about myostatin from like my old bodybuilding days and stuff like that. But that's about the only thing I recognize on 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 this map, right? I mean, this is all. This is great. I mean, you can you know get kits that measure you know these different things in the pathways. But these are all incredibly hard things to look at. And so there's really no good bio chemical marker or biomarker out there for, you know, where you are in terms of the muscle catabolic versus anabolic phase. Now, the, the one thing that I'll put here, everybody, you know, when I was a trainee, when I was a resident, oh, get nutritional markers, get albumin, right? And it's really important to understand that albumin is not a nutritional marker. It used, it, it has some value in outpatients who are not, you know, inflammatory and who are just, you know, in, in the sort of a regular uh, you know, living out in the community in terms of looking at um, their nutritional consumption. 
But for acutely ill patients, your albumin level is more of a reflection of inflammation and not necessarily nutrition. And uh, this is a position paper put out by Aspen that basically says, please, please, please stop measuring albumin and using that as, as an indicator of, uh, of uh, nutritional status. So when we think about nutrition, we got to give nutrition to people. The two buckets that I typically think about them as is the macro and the micronutrients, right? And these are all the different things that fall into each one of these categories. Uh, we, so proteins, super important. You know, they are essential amino acids. These are the things that you have to consume in your diet. The conditionally non-essential are the ones that you don't necessarily have to have in your diet. You can synthesize on your own. Um, but most of the studies that I've looked at and in studies that I've done, it, you know, people never actually make that switch. In a, in a laboratory, you can show that these, these are conditional, but in actual human studies during times of stress, you usually don't make enough of these uh, in your system. And then you have the non-essentials, which are, you know, things that are just kind of there, uh, you know, not super important. But, but these are super, uh, but if you look at the essential and the, the conditionally non-essential ones, these are very, very important during times of stress, and these are the things that you need. Now, people think, well, I'll just take a look, you know, I'll take a big shot of protein and, you know, it'll, it'll help me make, you know, more muscle, right? This cartoon basically shows that if you take 20 grams of protein orally, right, only about 2.2 grams of that, 20 grams of protein that you take is actually used for muscle protein synthesis. Everything else is used up in different areas for either neuro transmitter production, going to the splanchnic system, making other proteins and hormones and things like that. So to preserve your muscle, only about 10% uh, of what you actually take in orally is, is used. Now, this concept of muscle protein synthesis, or what we call MPS, is a major indicator of anabolic state. Only when you're in an anabolic state can you take the proteins and then synthesize and make, uh, make you know, new muscle. And it turns out that protein itself has a very strong anabolic effect. And as you can see in the graph over here is that every time you feed somebody, you give them a blast of, you know, protein, you get increased, so you get muscle protein synthesis. And then in between, when you're not being fed, you actually get breakdown of muscle when this happens. And you can show this, you know, with certain higher doses that you're using that there's more muscle protein synthesis. And it turns out that the most important amino acid here is something called leucine. So leucine is the amino acid that triggers uh, MPS. Uh, you know, we take a lot of this information and many of the early studies were done from the, you know, sort of the exercise and bodybuilding world. And that's why many bodybuilders take leucine as a separate supplement uh, in order to promote greater uh, protein synthesis. They'll take it with the, whatever their other protein sources are. And that's why it's, it's so important for protein synthesis. This is what leucine looks like, one of the major anabolic drivers in our system. And what's interesting is that whey protein, which is, you know, we all know what that is, a milk isolate, and it's you know, high in leucine. And that's why it's considered to be such a great protein source for people who are critically ill or for bodybuilders or athletes. So if you take completely healthy young men and you give them 10 grams versus 20 grams of, uh, of whey protein, you'll see that there's a dramatic change in muscle protein synthesis, right? You go from about 20% to about 50%. But when you go from 20 to 40 grams of, of whey protein, there really isn't that much of a difference, right? So all these people with their sitting with their muscle milk, taking 40 grams of protein when they're just sitting around, you know, shooting the breeze, 
I mean, basically, you're just pooping out 20 grams of, of whatever you took, right? It's completely useless for you at that time. Post-exercise, there is a little bit. So there is a little bit of value of going to like a, a, a higher dose. But as you can see, the, the delta is not that huge, right? If you go from 10 to 20, you go from basically 15 to 35. But then you go from 35 to maybe 48. So if you're an extreme athlete and you really need to have like every little bit of, you know, MPS to, to help you gain uh, uh, muscle mass, Sure, you can jack it up to 40, but most people will say that about after 30 grams of whey protein, you're really not getting any benefit, whether you're at rest or you're exercising, and that's kind of the cap. Now, remember, this is for healthy young men. Uh, I'll just take a little side note on this just because, you know, people talk about, you know, milk isolate proteins all the time. These are the two that we think about, whey and casein. And, and just so that you, you're aware that there is a major difference between the two. And for those of you who don't really know the difference between whey and casein, uh, if you have yogurt at home and you're the person that if the yogurt's been sitting there for a while and there's water on the top and you're dumping out the water and then eating the rest, well, you just dumped out all the whey protein in your in your yogurt. Uh, so you just threw out the most expensive part of your yogurt and you're just eating the leftover. Uh, but for those of you that are Greek yogurt fans, the reason why it's so delicious and, and creamy and, and wonderful tasting and filling is because uh, the way that Greek yogurt is done is there's very little whey in there. It's almost all 100% casein, and casein has that sort of texture. Now, why is that important to us? It's important because when casein goes into the stomach and is exposed to acid, it turns into a little ball, and it slowly leaches proteins out. And so it's a constant source of amino acid. And it does it in a way that it doesn't overwhelm the system, right? Because you take the whey protein, you get all the stuff in there, and then after you get to about 30 grams of whey, you're not promoting MPS anymore. But what casein can do is it can sit there and provide sort of a very low background. Many of you are aware that in the ICU, what do we do? We say, oh, give the tube feed and add like, you know, five scoops of benaprotein, which is whey protein, into the, the tube feed. That's exactly the wrong thing to do, right? Because now what we're doing is we're giving a giant load of whey protein all over 24 hours. And what that does is it actually reduces MPS that we should be giving those, those uh, bouts of whey protein in boluses. And so what we've done and what we typically do is we use a casein-based formula that goes on during the day. And then three times a day, we will bolus whey protein to give them that sort of anabolic effect. And, and that's how that ties into um, critically ill patients. And so this is basically showing you exactly what happens is you get this muscle full effect that after you give X amount of whey protein, what starts to happen is you start desensitizing the muscle. And so it's no longer responding to the anabolic effects of leucine. And that's why just adding in whey protein and giving it over 24 hours is not beneficial. Turns out the older you get, the higher dose you need. So remember those studies that I showed you of the 20 to 30 grams for the healthy young men? That's not the case when you get older. You need a higher amount of uh, protein to induce the same types of uh, muscle protein synthesis. And that's, that's what we talk about when we say anabolic resistance. That's an example of that. So our older patients need higher doses of protein. Um, and there's a bunch of studies here that, that I've referenced that basically shows that. And it's real. And, and again, you can see that the, the muscle protein synthesis is higher and higher. And, uh, you know, if you take it up to about the two grams per kilo in the elderly patients, that there's uh, more benefit when you do that. And this is completely, you know, counter to growing up 
what I was always taught. I remember my grandparents always being like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to eat that steak because I'm old now. You know, it's like, no, 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 you should be eating that steak because it's actually beneficial for you. I don't need it as much as you do. Uh, this is a side note when you're thinking about biological value of protein. You know, nowadays we have more and more patients that are coming in uh, who are either plant-based and are, you know, or don't want um, uh, milk-based uh, proteins. So there are other uh, sources that exist out there. And, you know, in the way that we can isolate proteins in today's world, there's really not a lot of difference between if you're using a plant-based or an animal-based uh, source. Uh, it's just how much. You just need to give a higher uh uh, sort of amount if you're using plant-based because you can see in terms of the biological value. If you think about egg protein being the, uh, you know, sort of the reference, which is 100, whey protein is obviously much better. But then even if you go all the way down to rice, it's only 74. So you just need to give more rice protein, in, you know, per gram to get the same amount of protein delivery. So that's the only difference there. So you just have to be mindful of that. All right. So we're going to move on to glucose. I already mentioned this issue of stress hyperglycemia. You know, all of us that are interested in nutrition and diet, you know, we're going to be like, look, glucose, bad, carbs, bad. And if you're in your normal life, you know, we all know that if you really want to lose weight, you go to a low-carb diet. Um, there's other reasons to go to a low-carb diet when you're critically ill, and it's because of this concept of stress hyperglycemia. But your liver is working overtime under stress, and, and, and gluconeogenesis is at an all-time high. So any carbohydrate that you're giving is going to be in excess. And we know that when your blood sugars are elevated, there's a whole host of side effects that, that happen as a result of that. So every gram of carbohydrate that you're giving, you're potentially uh, putting yourself in a state where you, you need higher where you're increasing the risk of infections and in, in all you know all these different things. What we typically try to recommend is to limit uh, total carbohydrate intake to about 150 milligrams per day. I even try to go down, especially in my class three uh, obesity patients. Uh, I'll try to bring that down to even about 100 milligrams of carbohydrates a day and really push the boundaries on the proteins and go to about the two grams per kilo uh, on those patients. Uh, and then in terms of insulin, both people say, hey, you know, you can just give a bunch of insulin, right? This is this is wonderful. Um, well, yeah, but there is a lot of insulin resistance and there's all types of problems giving exogenous insulin. So the answer is not, well, I'll just give a whole bunch of carbohydrates and meet their caloric needs and then just take care of that with insulin. The, 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 even though insulin, the nice thing about insulin, though, is that even though it doesn't have a direct effect on um, you know, mu uh, muscle protein synthesis, it does have an antiproteolytic effect. So even small amounts of insulin being in your system dramatically reduces the breakdown of protein. So just think about it, right? Because your insulin spikes because you have all this sugar in your system. Presumably your body thinks you have all this sugar because you ate a giant meal because you were starving. So if it if the insulin goes up, it says, well, I've got all this extra sugar here. I don't need to start breaking down protein to meet my energy needs. So it's sort of this reverse pathway that stops the breakdown of muscle when this happens. Uh, I'll just briefly mention the concept of glycemic index because it's kind of a hot topic and people think about this all the time. And a lot of patients talk about it these days or families talk about it. The, the whole, uh, you know, so this is a chart here. The, the thing is that glycemic index, 
you know, from a conceptual standpoint is, is fantastic. It really makes sense. When you do it in the laboratory, it makes a lot of sense. But there's no major clinical trials that show that if you stick to low glycemic index food, that there's a benefit in terms of mortality and definitely not in the critically ill patients. Um, and so these are some charts that you can use for your, your regular, you know, life. Uh, but this is, uh, on the left-hand side, this is basically what it's trying to show you. So if you switch to low glycemic food, you don't have that spike in insulin and then that dramatic drop afterwards. And what you're trying to do is sort of keep this even keel blood glucose production. So if you can potentially stick to um, low glycemic foods, the ups and downs in terms of insulin regulation are much less, and your blood sugar is much more likely to be uh, even throughout the day. All right, I'm going to move on quickly to the concept of fats, and this is, this is where it's all at these days in terms of fat supplementation. Uh, for those of you who, are, who uh, you know, have, uh, don't really keep up on your knowledge of fats, uh, let's start off with the most important thing. Coconut oil is good for you. It is not bad for you. Okay? This all happened in like the 1940s and 50s with the peanut oil lobby. Um, basically, they looked and they said their biggest, uh, you know, the U.S. is one of the largest producers of peanut oils, and they looked at their competitors and they said, oh, there's coconut oil that's being used everywhere across the world, and it's a huge issue for us, so they lobbied the federal government and basically banned it in the United States, and they created all these false ads in terms of, oh, you take, you know, coconut oil, it's, it's, it's thick, it's fat, you're going to have a heart attack and die. Well, if you look at populations that predominantly eat coconut oil, they have the lowest uh, cardiovascular risk profile, they have that, some of the health healthiest, uh, you know, health uh, status in the entire world. And it turns out that because coconut oil is high in lauric acid, which is a very potent uh, anti-infective material, and it's very high in MCTs, medium chain triglycerides, which are uh, wonderful sources, of dense sources of energy that even your brain can use as a primary source uh, of energy. So if you start in the middle and you say, okay, MCT oil or coconut oil is sort of your, okay, this is pretty healthy. If you start going to the left, this is everything in the United States, right? Soybean, safflower, and these are these are pro, 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 pro inflammatory. So everything we have in the United States that's that's sort of legal or that's mainstream is highly pro-inflammatory fats. And then if you start going to the right, you have olive oil and fish oil, and these are anti-inflammatory fats. And that's predominantly because of the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 to, to omega-9. When you go to the right, you have more and more omega-3 concentration. And when you go to the left, you're very, very high in omega-6. Uh, and so if you look at the effect of omega-3 fatty acids, you can you know, obviously give it PO and you can see you know, over time these types of effects. But if you give it intravenously, it's dramatic. You can see these types of anti-inflammatory effects or these beneficial effects within a couple of days. It's really phenomenal, you know, what happens. And, you know, we know that, you know, when you have basic fat, you have the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the glycerol backbone, and then you have the fatty acids, you know, the three fatty acid chains that are attached to it. And the fatty acids are really the pro-inflammatory, the pro or anti-inflammatory parts of it. And omega-3 fatty acids have these fatty acids that are very anti-inflammatory. And a lot of the research and our knowledge about fats is centered around the, you know, that piece of it. But what we don't realize, and this is the piece that's going to be super important, is how omega-3 fatty acids are, are the source of something called SPNs. So they're called specialized pro-resolving mediators. As our knowledge of sepsis and all these other you know, conditions in, in, in critical care 
are evolving, what we're starting to realize is patients don't die necessarily because of the initial insult. They die because something gets dysregulated in our body and our body doesn't know how to turn off these normal pathways that were initially meant to save our life. So this inflammatory pathway, what happens is we, there's a profound deficit of resolvance. Resolvance resolve inflammation and allow healing to happen. And turns out that omega-3 fatty acids is what we actually need and need to be able to metabolize in order to have healthy amounts of resolvance in our system. Uh, and so this is what you can see is you have there's an initial phase and there's a resolution phase, and that resolution phase is where resolvance come in. And with our normal diets, most Americans have incredibly low levels of SPMs. And that's really where the future of fat supplementation is going to go to. You can, you can certainly give people uh, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, which will then break down to EPA and DHA, and then will then again break down to SPMs. Uh, and we didn't really have commercially available SPMs because of how volatile they were. But just in the last two to three years, a number of companies have not come out with SPMs. And there's an ongoing relatively large trial that's going to look at the use of SPMs for all types of inflammatory issues. I'm sure there's going to be one related to ARDS coming out soon. Uh, you can't, so moving on to the micronutrients, I'm going to leave this chart. You guys can take a look at this. This is the typical thing that we all get in medical school, you know, in terms of micronutrients. Uh, don't forget, iron is always the big one. That's always a good one to look at. Vitamin D, we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, I have the other ones, A and E over here. E's obviously gotten a bad rap because of the bleeding issues related to that. And then I won't even go into the vitamin C issues because I'm sure all of you are very familiar with all the controversies related to, to the studies. Uh, all I can say is don't give high-dose vitamin C. Uh, and then vitamin B is what we're starting to recognize more and more in the U.S. as a major uh, deficit in, um, in critical ill patients. But there's not a lot of data that supports the use of high-dose vitamin B. Uh, in patients. Is there a problem with giving it? Not with vitamin B. I mean, it's water-soluble. So like whatever you give, if it's excess, you're just going to clear it out in the urine. So unless you have a really, really bad, you know, renal failure patient, it's probably just fine to use some kind of vitamin D supplementation. The one thing that I will talk about that many of us don't know is HMB, which is beta-hydroxy beta-methylbutyrate. And it's actually a metabolite of leucine. This is something that we normally have small micro amounts of in our body. But when we get critically ill or there's high demand, there's a dramatic reduction. And remember, we said leucine is that trigger for an anabolism. And it turns out that HMB is a much, much more, it's actually the HMB component of leucine, which is the, the, the trigger. And most critically ill patients uh, are, have a deficiency in that. These are sort of the, the metabolic pathways and stuff and how they affect, you know, muscle growth. But it turns out you can find it as a supplement. And if you give it to, to elderly patients, there's definitely a lot of evidence that shows that it promotes anabolism. There is um, studies on wound healing and, you know, functional status and all these different things that are affected by it. Vitamin D, this is something that I've spent a lot of my time on. So a couple of things that I'll tell you about that is it's not a vitamin. Um, it's actually a pro-steroid hormone. Uh, vitamin, by definition, is something that you can't synthesize, that you have to have take um, you know, through your diet. But we all know with exposure to sunlight, we can synthesize our own vitamin D. And this is a study that you know, we've done in multiple places. And a lot of people will say, well, if you live somewhere sunny, it doesn't really matter. So we did a study in Italy in a community which is you know, high exposure to sunlight. And it turns out that uh, a huge component, a huge number of those patients have undetectable vitamin D levels, even though they live in 
Italy and they have the most beautiful tans on the face of the planet. Why is that? Well, it's because everybody uses wonderful moisturizing creams these days because nobody wants to look all wrinkled. Uh, but all these creams have at least SPF 30 in them. And with SPF 30, you block 99.9% .9 of the UVB that you would normally use to synthesize vitamin D. So even though you have a great tan, you barely synthesize any vitamin D. And we've shown this in multiple communities that normally people think that, oh, there's a lot of sunlight exposure, that the vitamin D levels are incredibly low. Why vitamin D? Well, yeah, sure, it's involved with bone regulation and PTH and all those things. But it turns out that almost all the cells in our body have uh, can express 25-alpha hydroxylase, which is what activates vitamin D in our system. And it's really important for cell proliferation, differentiation, hormone secretion. And what I have been interested in is immune function. Uh, so it certainly helps with muscle health. Uh, and then if you look at studies related to mortality, mechanical ventilation, uh, you know, those are important. We did a study in sepsis and basically showed that, unfortunately, you need astronomical doses of vitamin D to actually have the effects that you're, you're looking for. Uh, and, it, and it's related to the production of antimicrobial um, uh, compounds in, in our body that are part of our, our natural defense system. Is there any data that it works? So this is the vital ICU randomized clinical trial. Basically, they were looking at um, length of stay, and unfortunately, that was negative. But what they didn't look at and what got very little uh, press is that if you look at the patients who were severely vitamin D deficient, when they were supplemented, that there was a reduction in mortality. And when they went back and looked at the study and did a simulation, if they would have enrolled 11 more patients in the study and had declared this as a primary endpoint, this would have been considered a positive trial. Uh, so it's one of those things that just got missed out. Uh, all right, so pre-probiotics, I'll just mention this really quickly. We all know about probiotics. Uh, you know, it's the, the jury's out there, especially for critical illness in terms of whether this is helpful or not. But what we're starting to look at more and more is this concept of prebiotics. And here's a, here's a chart where you can look at in terms of like what the differences are. The prebiotics are what supports the natural uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, environment in, in, in our gut. Uh, and so, you know, people talk about, well, I'm going to give lactobacillus to my patients, and, I, and why are the trials negative? So we all say, oh, the microbiome is amazing. It's highly individualized. Everybody has this amazing, unique signature. But then our response to illness is we're going to give you one strain and a mega dose of it, and then we're going to be like, why aren't you better, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So the challenge really is how do you take something, find out what somebody's individual microbiome profile looks like, and then supplement it to, to, to get to that. Uh, I just have about maybe like two minutes left here. Uh, we all know about the different routes of, uh, of administration. So we talked about oral uh, enteral or, you know, PN, you know, how do we make these calculations? So most of the time when you get a dietetic consult, they're going to use one of these equations, right? There's all these different fancy ones. Most of the people use, you know, the, the, uh, one of these, uh, one of these formulas. And, um, so we typically use the Harris Benedict one here or the weird, uh, the, the Harris Benedict Turns out, and what it usually ends up being is it's always somewhere in the 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram per day range. And so a lot of people just sort of use that. Uh, turns out that all of these formulas are absolute garbage. So if you take it and you use indirect calorimetry, the numbers are completely different. And so there's a strong push now to start moving towards actually doing indirect calorimetry 
calorimetry to figure out what the energy needs are right now. Um, the devices that we use are much smaller, much more affordable. And so in the next few years, you're really going to see a big push towards getting the right numbers. Unfortunately, there isn't anything as great for proteins just quite yet. We're still looking at nitrogen balance. So you have to still collect, you know, urine over 24 hours and sort of go with that. These are the calories per, you know, item that you're looking at. So if you're trying to have a conversation with your, your dietetic team, you know, protein versus carbohydrates versus fats, you know, why does it make more sense to go high protein, high fat, and then minimize your carbohydrates? Well, because the fats are more than double the calories of the carbohydrates, and that's what allows you to really cut down on the carbohydrates. You could give your patients alcohol. I mean, that, that, that works too. Uh, so supplementation, these are all different oral supplements that exist out there. You guys are all familiar with all of these. These are all the different tube feeds that are out there, and there's a bunch of different profiles that you can look at there. Uh, but this is really the future of tube feeds. So this is blended whole foods, right? And this is like there's plant-based foods. There's, you know, like steak and, and potatoes. There's like Thanksgiving dinner, like all blended, right, that you can do this. Uh, and so this is really the future of where we're going to go. We're going to take real foods, blend them down, and then do bolus feeding intermittently to simulate normal uh, dietary patterns. And then the central versus peripheral nutrition, I think you guys are very, very familiar with this and many of the, of the risks associated with it. One thing that I will say is that a lot of the data regarding hyperglycemia and infections, these are very, very old before we had modern practice of blood sugar control. If you look at the newer data, uh, using uh, ID nutrition is not nearly as bad as what it used to be. And the last thing here is uh, there's more and more um, uh, injectable fats that are coming out that have these omega-3 fatty acids built into them, and their anti-inflammatory profile is you know, significantly better than what we used to have on the top, which is intralipid, which is, you know, 100% soy-based oil and, you know, not necessarily the best thing for us. So with that, I'm sorry I ran over quite a bit, but I will stop there. And I think there's a couple of questions in the chat that I'll try to look at. Let's see. Can you see changes in your VCO2 when you transition? Yes, you can, 100%. That is one of the best ways to be able to, to, to do that if you're measuring it. And that's what, if you're using your REE, that's what it will tell you. There are programs that are built into, like the Hamilton Vents, for example, actually have a console that you can buy that does continuous resting energy expenditure, and it does that by looking at VO2 and VCO2 in that. Human absorption is about 0.5 grams per protein bolus as well. Yes, 100%, exactly. Do resolvin levels change with age? Yes, the older you get, the less resolvins you have. And so in elderly patients, it's probably much better. Lucas, uh, fantastic talk. Interested to hear your thoughts on bolus, intermittent versus continuous feed. Seeing increasing interest. Yeah, 100%. So there's, uh, this is a great question, Lucas. So there's a huge um, push towards going towards um, intermittent feeding and not feeding at night. Um, what happens is at night when you're feeding somebody, you get secretion of um, insulin-like growth factor. And IGF-1 uh, stimulates a whole bunch of different pathways that downregulates melatonin, downregulates sleep, and can be a major driver towards uh, increasing the risk of delirium and cognitive dysfunction. We have a trial going on right now, a, a pilot trial 
while at MGH that I started before I left is exactly comparing this, looking at 24-hour feeding versus bolus feeding during the day to see whether there's a whether there's a change or not. But I suspect that we're going to see, you know, in in American healthcare, there's always this pendulum, right? It used to be only bolus feeding, and then we're like, no, 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 continuous feeding is better. I think we're going to go back to most likely bolus feeding um, as a as a mechanism uh, of feeding. And with that, I'll take any other questions that people might have. This was such a great talk. I think um, nutrition is something we deal with every day, but again, we're we're often so sort of thinking about it. And so it's it's a really, really nice talk. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, my pleasure. And if you guys have any questions, you can email me. I think my email is on the on the distribution list. Happy to to answer any questions.